An infectious disease physician finds himself in the midst of an epidemic from one of the most terrifying infections on the planet. Welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and I'm joined by Dr. Stephen Hatch, author of Inferno, A Doctor's Ebola Story. So, Dr. Hatch, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. So, what is your background as a physician? Originally, I fell into medicine by accident. I was originally getting a PhD in English literature, and it became pretty clear to me pretty quickly that it wasn't what I wanted to do. And because graduate students in literature don't make a lot of money, I needed to get a part-time job in the 1990s. And I got a job at Case Western Reserve University Hospital in Cleveland. And that originally got me interested in medicine. I hadn't really been interested in it before that. And I saw what people were doing, and I thought, this is something that I'd be interested in pursuing in life. So I started all over, and I went back and took the pre-med classes and ended up in medical school and then further on into internal medicine and infectious disease. I got interested in infectious disease while I was a pre-med, and I had been reading some books about international health, and I realized that intellectually I was interested not only in the diseases people had from a physiologic standpoint, but the impact that the way we live in the world has on the diseases that we get. And so infectious disease is kind of a natural place where we think about that a lot. So how did you come to work in Liberia the first time? Originally, I, I work in Worcester, Massachusetts, which has a very large Ghanaian community. And I had gone to my, my boss and told him that I wanted to have a chance to work in sub-Saharan Africa as part of ongoing career goals that I had as an infectious disease doctor. And he said to me that he didn't know anybody that he could set me up with in Ghana, but that he said, by the way, you know, we've got a small Liberian community here in Worcester, and a lot of our doctors go back and forth. Why don't I put you in touch with Trish McQuilkin, who is a pediatrician who had been going back and forth to Liberia multiple times a year since the end of Liberia's civil war in about 2004, 2005. And so she and I had met one another, and I decided to come over with her for one of her visits. And that was in November 2013, which was about five to six weeks before the first case of Ebola had been contracted in Guinea, which is one of the neighboring countries to Liberia. So for most of us, our only knowledge of Ebola was Richard Preston's wonderful book, The Hot Zone. So as a United States infectious disease doctor, how much did you know about Ebola before it really creeped up this time? I had been, like you, I had read The Hot Zone and had found it very interesting as well. And it was one of the things that drove my interest in infectious disease. And so that morphed into a career interest in doing work in hemorrhagic fever, which is how I actually ended up in UMass for my infectious disease fellowship in the first place. There is a group here, there was a group here at the time that had done devoted immunologic research to dengue fever, of which the most severe presentation is dengue hemorrhagic fever. And while that was not Ebola and Marburg, in terms of Massachusetts, that was as good as I was going to get. And I was in Massachusetts. My wife was on her career track and we were raising kids. And so I wasn't going to get the chance to go to places where they were doing Ebola or Marburg. So I ended up coming out to UMass doing dengue research. So I knew a little bit, I knew actually, I, I would like to think I knew a moderate amount about all hemorrhagic fever viruses. So when this outbreak struck, although I had not worked in a laboratory with Ebola and I didn't have any clinical experience with Ebola patients, I knew a little bit of the principles 
that governed some of the immunologic aspects of hemorrhagic fevers and the differences between these viruses. So the outbreaks begin in Africa. How do you decide to go back? You feel obligated to go back. For those people who have worked in resource-limited settings, who have seen what kind of an impact resource limitations can have on a person's prognosis for you know, routine illnesses that usually are not that big a deal in the United States. When you see that, and people treat you very, very well when you go abroad in general, I think in situations like that, my own personal sense was that I was obligated to help these people. I was also part of a relationship that the University of Massachusetts has had now for many years with Liberia in which, you know, we're committed to them. And I felt that part of that commitment means that when they need help, you come. And this was a dramatic example of it. And so given that I had just met them and I knew these people, some of whom would go on to become infected with Ebola and some of whom would die, I felt that there was no way I could, in good conscience, just sit on the sidelines. So much like a fireman, you're running into the burning building while everyone else is running out. Yeah, interestingly enough, when I was headed over, I wrote an op-ed that got published in the online version of the New York Times that used that very analogy. As I said, you know, the way I was thinking about it is, you know, cops get up every day and they put themselves on the line in potentially lethal situations and firemen and firefighters in general do the same thing. People in the armed forces, people in various professions where you have to put the safety of your body on the line as part of doing something. And they do that every day of their careers. And, you know, we have relatively cushy jobs in the United States. And I did not think it was in, I feel like I've always gotten the better end of that bargain. And it was just, this is part of the equation of morally doing what is expected and asked of you. I 100% get it, but I can't imagine everyone in your life was so embracing of what you, your decision was. I Actually, in my personal life, they were, and that's because they know me and they know sort of my moral balance sheet. And so that wasn't, it was just never a question. Professionally, some of the people, some of my colleagues thought I was out of my mind. And, you know, it took some gentle encouragement to get them to see you know, what was what was really motivating and driving me there. So could you explain for our listeners, what does an Ebola infection look like clinically? Could you take us through that? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things to start, since you, you mentioned Richard Preston earlier, for those people who have not read The Hot Zone, first of all, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a great work of sort of spine tingling. It almost sounds like it's fictional. It's so, it's so good. It's almost like a thriller. Yeah, and, and to a certain extent, I would argue that there is a quality of it that is, in fact, fiction. Although it is a nonfiction book, it is written in a certain way that there are some misunderstandings that I think were created by the book, and that's not to be deeply critical because I think it's, it had a major impact on my life. But one of the things that's emphasized in the hot zone is that it is a disease of bleeding. And I think that even before and during the outbreak, the West African outbreak, that is, of 2014, I think people, even physicians, thought they saw the hemorrhage in hemorrhagic fever and assumed that it was a disease in which patients bled. GI bleeding and other 
more dramatic forms of bleeding. And in, in the hot zone, you know, there are some scenes in which people are bleeding from their eyes. That was not the general course for most patients. It really is a disease that has, and this is oversimplifying things, but just to give a bird's eye view, it's a disease that starts out non-specifically and really looks a lot like flu, high spiking fever, generalized malaise, myalgias, arthralgias, and that goes on for several days. And people then progress into a second phase of illness, which is characterized by massive gastrointestinal fluid losses. So it's voluminous diarrhea and or vomit. And so when I sort of teach my medical students just a simple bite-sized way of remembering it is you get about five or six days or a week of influenza, and then you progress to cholera. And so that really is what drives in large part the mortality. There was a subset of patients who did have frank bleeding, which is known in other hemorrhagic fever diseases, which is sort of where that nomenclature comes from. Although in the literature, they're now moving away from using those terms. They call it now Ebola virus disease instead of Ebola hemorrhagic fever. And what's interesting about it is, is that you know people think, oh, hemorrhagic fever bleeding, and yet we see patients here who have, for instance, meningococcal meningitis or bad pneumococcal meningitis, or E. coli bacteremia, and they'll go into DIC, and they'll have bleeding episodes. And I suspect that at least a large number of the patients who developed frank bleeding, which is often gastrointestinal, were probably in the midst of a DIC episode. If you're just tuning in, welcome to ReachMD Book Club. I'm your host, Dr. John Russell, and we are joined by Dr. Stephen Hatch, author of Inferno, A Doctor's Ebola Story. So how do you propose that you th the infection started in Liberia? What do you think is the, for lack of a better term, the patient zero for the country of Liberia? In terms of Liberia, we know roughly where the virus was introduced. It was introduced in a village called Foya, which was in the northwest corner of Liberia in a section called Lofa County. Just to give people who haven't been there a sense, because when you look at it on the map, it looks like, you know, it's as small as Rhode Island. But Liberia is a country just about the size of Pennsylvania in terms of its overall size. So it's not a small country. It's just that Africa is so big and relative to its neighbors, it's small. And I actually have never read a lot about the first patient in Liberia. We do know a fair amount about what we're pretty sure is patient zero of the entire outbreak, which was a two-year-old boy named Emil Wamunu, who lived in the southwest corner of Guinea and became infected in late 2013. And he was in a village called Meliandu. And that village is really within only about 30 or 40 miles of both the borders of Sierra Leone and of northwest Liberia. So the first infection in Liberia almost certainly resulted from invisible outbreaks that people had not been tracking that eventually went across the border into northwest Liberia. So when you arrived in Liberia, the epidemic was really raging. You had already lost some of your friends who you had worked with in Liberia. So what do you do to, to control that type of infection as a physician? It is a disease that is best treated with contact precautions. And the good news about Ebola is because of the viral structure, it's got a, a lipid envelope, which means that it's actually very easily deactivated by bleach. 
and bleach is cheap and it's easily available. And so what was required at a national level, in addition to Ebola treatment units and getting people out of circulation as much as possible who were infected so that they did not pose further risk to other people, was as a prophylactic measure, getting people to wash their hands, use bleach solutions, minimize their contact. And it took a while to get that message out and the messaging from the ministries of health into the general population so that people started to avoid unnecessary contacts. But it eventually took hold. I think one thing that I I really am trying to emphasize in the book and a message that I want people to understand is that running water and the ability to use soap and bleach are things that we take for granted here in the United States because we have the infrastructure that makes that possible. It's actually hard to envision a way in which you could have had a similar size to the outbreak in the United States, even if we had done nothing to modulate our behavior, precisely because people have running water for which you can wash your hands very easily. And that's more of a luxury in Liberia. So you're working in a Ebola hospital, and you, and you indeed were working in one of those spacesuits, so to speak? Yeah, the so-called spacesuit is a contact isolation suit. And people use different forms, but the ones that we were using at the time in October of 2014, which was at the very tail end of the heaviest period of the outbreak, was made by DuPont Corporation, and it was called either Tychem or Tyvek. We used those two different suits. And basically what it did is it provided a seal along with masks, ski goggles that we used to keep the seal over the eyes, and then finally just routine uh, latex gloves. So I I couldn't imagine that would be very hot (laughs) working in Africa in those suits. It did wonders for my waistline. I lost... 25 pounds in five weeks. So I was I was very pleased. You know, one of the things I thought was really kind of beautiful in your book was the patients who were still in isolation but had really recovered and how they took to caring for other people who came in because I guess there's only so much you can do in these big protective suits for just the day-in and day-out care for people. Yeah, we generally rounded on patients for, on average, about two hours. The nurses who are among some of the most amazing professionals I've worked with, they would often round for up to three hours. And your body's pretty taxed in 100-degree weather with about 90% humidity where you're sealed off from the world in a suit that also, you know, like when we would walk from one building to the other, they just, it would soak up the sunlight. So it meant that we couldn't be on the floors, so to speak, you know, in the wards all day long, doing the kind of things that we would normally be doing back in the States. And as a consequence of that, it really did fall in many instances to the patients themselves to rally one another and care for one another. And one of the most important things that I talk about a little in the book, and perhaps I wish I had done it more, was to talk about just how much the children who often were positive, but their parents had already died from the disease. And so they were effectively orphaned, at least for the purposes of what was going on in the Ebola treatment unit, is if we had positive children who go over to the confirmed ward side, they would need to be cared for by somebody. You have a five-year-old kid. He can't look out for himself. And 
what happened throughout the time I was there and and after is the people who happened to be around took over the duties and you had perfect strangers really taking over parental uh, responsibilities for these children. What was the mortality rate in your hospital? The Ebola treatment unit that I worked at was in Bong County, in one of the northernmost parts of Liberia, not very far from Lofa County. It opened in mid-September 2014, which was just around the peak of the epidemic. And when it opened from mid-September until early October, the mortality rate in our ETU of the confirmed cases of Ebola was about 70%, which is consistent with historical data on prior Ebola outbreaks. That's a common mortality rate for the Zaire strain of the Ebola virus, which is what this was. By the time I left, five weeks after that, the mortality rate had dropped to about 50%, and that's more or less where it stayed for the rest of the outbreak, which lasted in Bong County for about four more weeks, five more weeks. So we were kind of surprised by the numbers. We also know from tracking the numbers across Liberia that it was not isolated to our unit. It was actually happening everywhere. And nobody really knows to this day why that is. The original thought would be is that the virus somehow attenuated, but subsequent studies that had been done at the Broad Institute at MIT indicated that there was very little mutation in the virus to suggest that that was the cause. So that's still a little bit of a mystery as to what happened and why the mortality rate declined over the period of the outbreak. So I'd like to ask you a two-part question about coming back to the United States. One is you saw probably more death in the period of time that you were in Liberia than you ever had as a physician in the United States. So dealing with that on one part. And two, you're returning to suburban Massachusetts from being an Ebola doctor. I can't imagine that people were kind of inviting you over for barbecues. You know, what, what was it like to be that pariah of a sort coming back from that after being very brave, but people being very scared of you? Thank you for asking me both of those questions, because you are right that I saw, like many doctors, especially those of us who work in level three referral centers with a lot of very sick patients, and I do inpatient medicine, so I see patients in intensive care units. So I'm used to seeing disease that comes with a high mortality rate, but seeing the number of patients that we did, and about one patient died on average per day while I was there. So I ended up in about a 35-day tour seeing about 35 patients die. It was, at some level, it was the youth of the patients, and also really becoming intimate with the family stories, I would see not just people die, but people die in front of their parents or in front of their children. And that was, I think, some of the the least pleasant aspects of working there, where you really understood just how deep this tragedy was. That was what was unusual, because I think back in the States, when you deal with people dying, you are at a much greater remove, whereas we were right there. You know, it wasn't that I had to comfort a son who had just lost his mother, but I had to comfort a son who just lost his mother and then care for the son. Or what was much worse, frankly, was that I had to comfort a mother and treat a mother who had lost a son. So that was really tough. In terms of coming back, looking back on it and hearing some of the experiences of some of my colleagues, I feel like I was spared the worst. The policies of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts were relatively benign. And people were 
curious about me and some were fearful, but you know, I was I was lucky in that I no one had ever threatened me, which was something that I was worried about. And nobody had vandalized my house, which is something that, you know, could have happened. So I think to a, a large extent, in retrospect, it wasn't that bad an experience. The hard part was I came back to the United States a couple weeks after Craig Spencer had fallen ill, and he was the physician in New York City who had returned from Sierra Leone and gotten sick and really caused a mass panic in New York, even though he played everything by the book. And so I returned to the United States two weeks after he did, and it was my anxieties over what might await me and the lack of clarity that I got from some of the state authorities in terms of what was going to be expected of me. That raised the tension a great deal. And that was, I think, the hardest part of going through that experience, which I devote almost an entire chapter to in the book, is what is trying to anticipate what might happen if I did, in fact, develop Ebola the way Craig Spencer had, and then having to make decisions in the moment, not knowing whether that was going to happen or not. That was, I think, the most tense part of that whole episode. I ended up being lucky in the end that there were no major incidents and that I didn't suffer the kinds of treatments that some of the volunteers who were really fully isolated and quarantined by their state governments, which I, I personally feel benefited no one and caused psychological damage to those people who went through that. Because once you've come back from those experiences, the last thing you want to do is become a social pariah. So Ebola has more or less disappeared. The epidemic has more or less disappeared in Africa, but it's not gone, correct? That's correct. Nobody knows with complete certainty what the natural reservoir is, but there's pretty strong evidence to suggest that at the very least, bats are intermediate hosts, if not the natural reservoir of the virus. And there are a lot of bats in Africa. There's multiple species and there's literally millions of bats that live from West Africa all the way to Central Africa, which is where Ebola is normally seen. Um, the West African outbreak was relatively unusual. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for being on the show. The book is Inferno, a wonderful read about something that has really come and grasped our attention over the last few years. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. For more programs in the series, please visit reachmd.com slash book club.